Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Benita Alexander. She is a love con expert. How are you doing today, Benita? I'm good, Brad. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much for making the time to be here with me today and share a bit about your story and your journey. I'm looking forward to diving in and chatting with you today. Yeah, my pleasure. So, You are an award-winning investigative television producer, showrunner, correspondent, director, writer, narrator. You're also the founder of and CEO of, how do you say, Baraka? I can't even say it correctly. It's Baraka, but you're supposed to roll your R's, you know, like, and I can't do it. So I butcher it. It's a beautiful Colombian word, but I can't even say it right. Okay, well, Baraka Productions. (laughs) And last, but certainly not least, your mother. That is a hell of a lot of hats and quite a resume. How on earth do you find the time for all of this and how do you prioritize and how important is prioritization to you especially I mean you having worked as a producer in the film and television world so I'm assuming prioritization is incredibly important you know I've always been very driven and I guess kind of a workaholic I think when I was younger I came out of my family had a very difficult divorce and through college I was I was wrestling a little bit with an eating disorder and I think it became became a coping mechanism. You know, I threw myself into college and work and that was sort of my being on overdrive and was and becoming a high achiever and somewhat of a perfectionist was kind of a coping mechanism, but it's also yeah. very much who I am. But I'm also just a kind of person that I'm not somebody who can just languish. You know, I like a challenge. I like to be busy. I have a ton of energy and I like the opportunity to try new things and make a difference. So I like wearing a lot of different hats. Yeah, Being a mom, I absolutely adore children. Um, always wanted to be a mom. Would have had more if I I could. And so that's just a, you know, kind of the icing on the cake of the whole yeah. thing. Um, yeah. And I guess, yeah, I'm just good at balancing a lot of different things. And I enjoy, I actually enjoy it. How long have you worked in the film and television world? And what inspired you to pursue a career in that world? Funny story, actually, I grew up in Australia and my uncle, one of my mother's brothers worked for Radio Free Europe as a radio journalist. And he came to visit us. And I remember this so clearly, I was eight and I already liked writing. You know, I had run one, a couple of little poetry contests and things. But he came to visit and I was asking him what he did. And I was so enthralled by, you know, it sounded so exciting to me. And as soon as he left, I turned to my parents and I said, that's what I want to be. I want to be a journalist. And of course he was tickled, you know, over the years as I not only became one, but did very well. I thought I would be a print journalist. And that's what I studied in college. Did work in print for a little while, right out of school then quickly moved into radio and then decided I was never going to make enough money in radio. And so went to television. (laughs) So I started in television only two, maybe two, a year and a half to two years after finishing college and have never left. Now you spent 17 years working in that world. So I would imagine things have changed quite a bit since you first began your career in television. Correct. I mean, yes. 
where did you start out in that world? And what was your first gig? And when you began your career, how was it for you as a woman climbing the ranks in what I assume was a fairly male dominated industry when it came to roles that you eventually achieved like producer? Right. My first television job was in local television in Detroit, Michigan, which is where I had grown up in that area and went to college at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. And it was at the local NBC affiliate. And I mean, those were going back to the days I'm dating myself, but where, you know, you still had machines that spat out the news wires, you know, on paper yeah. and um, <laughs> it was old fashioned journalism before, even before, I mean, there were cell phones and internet, but you know, it was at the early stages of it. Yeah. So it was good old fashioned, hard reporting. So it's changed a lot in that sense. In terms of being a woman, I don't think I noticed it overtly so much. What I would say I noticed consistently over the years was the pay inequity. And, and then I mean, that was just an issue across the board. And there have been times where I've had to fight for myself as a woman, even recently when I was much more accomplished, you know, where I was a lead producer, but yet all three men, you know, just who had lesser roles, put their names ahead of mine, you know, things like that. So there definitely is still a lot of work to do. I think women have come a long, long way in TV and it's a much more balanced field now, but yeah, the inequity still exists. Unfortunately, so how, how do you think that in your opinion, do women continue to move forward and work toward getting that pay equity? What kinds it's of things a difficult can be done? Question. I mean, mm -hmm. I think above and beyond all, you have to speak up for yourself. Mm -hmm. And this is something I think women didn't do for a long time for very many reasons. And we were sort of taught not to, unfortunately, but you really have to be your own advocate and stand up for yourself and speak up for yourself, even when it's scary, you know, even when it's, you're not sure about it, because honestly, what's the worst thing that can happen is that nothing happens or yeah. you get, you get turned down, but really finding your voice as a woman and knowing your worth and not being afraid to stand up for that and fight for that, you know, and it, it's something I wish I could teach all younger women. And I hope the next generation is much better at than we were. Yeah, I really do. Because you, you just have to fight for yourself. Have you personally seen a shift in that where women are starting to step I into think so. their authentic voice? Yeah, I do think yeah. so. I think okay. women are much stronger overall. Yeah. And yeah, much more sort of comfortable in their yeah. own, you know, shoes in the workplace and comfortable taking a stand. And I see, I do, I do have a lot of hope with that. I see that getting better and better and, yeah. you know, speaking up against things that are wrong, you know, the whole Me Too movement, everything, yeah. all of it, that it's just, it is shifting. It is changing. Yeah. Now you've also done some narration work. Was doing narration work in television and film like a natural step for you? Or did you start doing narration first? And then into producing, how did that progression happen for you? It was kind of an accident. <laughs> when, I was, when I was working at NBC, I did a lot of work with Meredith Vieira, who was a big correspondent there. And when you're producing for the big correspondents, when you're in the process of putting the story together, you put what we call scratch track, which is somebody else's voice on the story. And the correspondent doesn't come in and voice it until the very, very end, when you have everything, all the pieces of the puzzle, the story exactly where you want them, because otherwise you're just wasting their time because there's so many changes along the way. So I would always go in and record for Meredith. And I sounded so much like her that a couple of funny things happened. People were always asking a couple of times we went into a screening with like all the big bosses and there's like, Meredith doesn't sound right there. And I'm like, that's not Meredith, you know? <laughs> and one time they actually sent out a story or a tease or something yeah. with my voice instead of Meredith. <laughs> so, yeah. So it became this big joke about, oh, maybe Benita should just, you know, do the narration instead. And then yeah. after I left NBC and I was working for, I've done a lot of work for investigation 
patient discovery. And finally, somebody just said, because I was doing the same thing. I was doing right. all the scratch track. And finally, somebody just said, why doesn't Benita just narrate this? You know? <laughs> so yeah, it was a total accident. Although I did have a professor, I was thinking about that today in college in a radio yeah. class who said, yeah. I see you having a radio career. So it's, it's kind of ironic. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What would you say was one of the biggest highlights of your career in film and television? Oh, that's such a hard one, but I've been able to do some pretty exciting things. I mean, we did a couple of specials, you know, a day in the life of the White House. And so, you know, spending 24 hours in the White House and, you know, experiencing all that firsthand. And in the same vein, I was on an aircraft carrier for, I think it was 48 hours, somewhere off the coast of Bahrain. We didn't even know where we were. And a big crew of us filming, you know, 48 hours in the life of an aircraft carrier. And so we got to, um, I can't remember what they call that thing, a trap maybe, when it lands on the the aircraft carrier. And those are two things that pop into my head that were very interesting and exciting. That's pretty, uh, you spent 24 hours at the White House. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. I mean, throughout your career and working for such a big station and whatnot, you must have seen some pretty incredible things and worked on some damn incredible stories and yeah. just amazing. I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. It's actually really fun. Yeah. It was really fun. What has been one of the most difficult projects you've worked on in your career? Nine mm. eleven, without a question. Yeah. It was just so heart wrenching and so emotional and so devastating. And I actually have, well, I had, I formed close bonds with two 9-11 widows after doing stories with them. Often, it's funny, I think back, I, I often become friends later with, yeah. with people I've done yeah. stories on. And one of them was, her husband was a firefighter and it was, it was their wedding anniversary. Tragically, it was such a horrible story, but she and I are still very good friends. I absolutely adore Marion. And then another woman whose husband was in one of the towers and she was yeah. on the phone with him right up to until the end. Beautiful, beautiful woman. And she became very involved in activism afterwards and was, you know, constantly at the White House and everything. And then, I mean, just the most tragic story. And it was just the two of them. They didn't have any children. And I can't remember now what year it was. It was some years after 9-11. And she died in a plane crash. Oh my um, gosh. And so those stories sit with me forever. I don't think I can ever shake that day and the, the weeks yeah, following yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah. And then I did a, an investigative story on Guatemalan adoption scams and that one also sits with me still because it just, you know, I wanted to bring all these, if I could have yeah. brought all these kids home from Guatemala in my suitcase, I would have, you know, I love <laughs> children and it was just heart-wrenching, you know, the things that go on and the, the kidnappings and the, those stories were difficult to do. So then how in that world and, and having to deal with some of the tragic stories, I mean, of course, there's some great stories and happy, feel-good stories too, but how do you, I guess, for lack of a better word, compartmentalize so you don't bring your work home with you and have it affect your daily life? It's hard. I think it's, or at least I imagine, mm-hmm. it's not much different than what, you know, anyone on the front lines, right? Emergency workers go through, you know, firemen, you know, yeah. um, police, people in hospitals, people in morgues. I don't, I don't know. You learn, and I guess it's sort of innate as a journalist, you learn not to, you know, yeah. but it's also, for me, it was a constant battle because I, I think I'm a very empathetic and compassionate person. And so I, and some stories would just touch me so much that it was yeah. very difficult. I really had to fight with myself not to get too emotionally vested. And then you don't want to become cold and completely withdrawn because I think you are a much better storyteller when 
you actually can put yourself in someone's shoes and feel and think about what they're going through. And I never wanted to lose that, but there were times when it was overwhelming. 9-11 was one of them for sure. You know, it just, some stories were so overwhelming that it would take me weeks sometimes to sort of shake it. And then again, there are stories that you do that are so rewarding because, you know, there's a happy ending or you, you know that you somehow made a difference in someone's life or you helped expose something or you, you know, people thank you for what you did. And of course that makes it all worth it. Yeah, that outweighs. The, yeah, by the far bad. outweighs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, by far. Yeah. So, as a producer, you're obviously a storyteller. Now, I've heard a lot of people talking about how the art of storytelling is a dying art form. And would you agree with that statement first? Also, in your opinion, would you say that we as a society, as people, have kind of lost sight of the art of storytelling? And would you say that they're correct in saying that? I actually disagree. I think the art of storytelling has been diluted, I guess, condensed and definitely modified. It's changed by necessity because, you know, the world has changed. The way we share information and tell news has changed. But I do not think it's a dead art by any means. I mean, you can still pick up a whatever Washington Post, New York Times, uh, you know, one of these, the New Yorker, you know, and you will read a very good yarn told by a very good storyteller that still exists. And important. I think the art of storytelling has transitioned to TV and documentaries much more, and it still exists there. And it, writing and telling a story is equally as important in television. So no, I think it's still there. I think, it yeah. again, it exists in different forms now. And I think what concerns me more, even than the storytelling, and it's something I've run up against a couple of times recently myself, is the lack of fact-checking. And the reliability, it's almost a laziness where people just do a Google search and assume that everything they're reading somewhere else is correct, which is not the case. And then mistakes get reprinted and reprinted and people aren't just, they're not rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work. And I'm seeing this quite a bit with young journalists. I've had two experiences just in recent weeks where articles came out and I had to correct. And they were both young women who really respected me and which I really appreciated, but I also had to sort of say, look, you know, you can't yeah. do that. You know, you, yeah. you've, you've got to check. You've got to ask if you read something fine, but ask me. So that troubles me a little more than the storytelling that it's so easy to get information now. And we didn't have that when I was coming up in journalism, you couldn't just do a Google search and you had yeah. to dig, you had to make yeah. phone calls. You had to, you know, you had to do your research. And I think that is creating an inherent laziness. I don't know what else to call it. You know, just it's, and that's, it's a little troubling to me. Yeah, well, this age we're in of wanting everything now and not right. being patient and that right. all plays into it, right? Because everybody right. just does not want, like you said, they don't want to, they're, they're lazy. They don't want to do the work, whatever the case is. They want the easy way out. Immediate gratification. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't know how the hell we change that. I don't either. I don't either. And I, I felt a little bit badly actually with both of these young women because I, I was kind of firm with them in, you yeah. know, when I sent my corrections, but at the same time, I thought uh, hopefully they'll learn a lesson, you know, yeah, um, because that's their reputation, you know, yeah, that's... for sure. And that's, I mean, in that industry, that's all you have. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you had an unlimited budget at your disposal, what would be your dream production project? Mm -hmm. Unquestionably, I would start my own production company that would be run by maybe not all, but mostly women, strong women, and would focus exclusively on telling empowering stories, much like you're doing with this podcast about (laughs) strong women and sharing those with the world. And that's my dream. And to bring in all, I've worked with so many incredibly talented, strong women over the years and bringing as many of them on board as possible. Yeah, that would well, be my dream. Not even a second thought there. Just Mm-mm. right away. This is, I can tell you thought about this a fair bit. 
<laughs> yeah. You've been recognized by your peers in your industry, received multiple awards, nominations, and accolades for your work. What do those accolades and awards mean to you on a personal level? Look, I'm proud of the awards and I, I think accolades are nice and they're validating. But for me, there's much more reward in the work itself and, yeah. and the knowing that you've perhaps made a difference in someone's life or helped them with something or told somebody's story in a way that they wouldn't be able to tell themselves. That to me is much more gratifying and satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it here. I still have the first Emmy that I ever got was for a 9-11 story on the Flight 93 victims. I still have that up here above yeah. my TV, and I'm still very proud of that one. I'm not even sure what the other ones are. So, yeah, I think they are nice and they're validating, but I certainly don't work for the awards. Right. It doesn't carry that much weight. It's nice to be no. recognized, but it's right. more about the work. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is there any one award in particular, though, that you're most proud of receiving for your work? Oh, well, I guess I'll go back to that Emmy because it yeah. was the first one and because it was for 9-11. And there was a group of us that won that together. But because that was such a difficult story to work on and such an important story and because it was the first one. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, if I have people over a party, I always forget, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's such a big attraction. So I will, if I'm having a party every single time I'll come in here and someone's climbed up there and taken it down and it's posing for photos. <laughs> and that's just amusing. It's just funny. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> what excites or lights you up the most about the work you do in film and television? Meeting so many different people and being exposed to all these different walks of life and people and things and places that I never would be otherwise. You know, it's sort of like you get a little little taste of all these different things that in a different career, you would never have that happen. And the people talking to different people who've been through different things and experienced different things and just learning about different people and different ways of life. And yeah, very much the people. I'm sure you could write a, an entire book on <laughs> just the people that you've yeah. met and encountered and mm -hmm. what they've brought to your life too, because yes, you've brought to their life by sharing their story, but they also bring to your life too and give back Absolutely. in that way. It's a, it's a give and take relationship, right? Very much. Yeah. yeah. And as I said, I have a number of people that are friends from stories I did. Yeah. And you, you bond with people sometimes and you bond in the process of the storytelling and yeah yeah it's just it's it's lovely there are a lot of people I just I would never have known you know yeah. if I were in a different profession yeah now, as mentioned, you are the CEO of Barica Productions, which was started to further your advocacy work to empower women who are the survivors of love fraud. This journey began for you as a result of your own personal struggles and, and story with love fraud, correct? Yes. Can you tell us a bit about your personal story and journey? If you don't mind sharing, give us a brief overview of what happened with your story. Yeah, it's hard to do briefly, but I'll give you the, I'll give yeah, you the well, whatever. digest version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, I fell in love with a, a man who I thought was dream man. He was a surgeon and scientist, world renowned surgeon and scientist. His nickname was a super surgeon. I was doing a story on him back in 2012, 2012, 2013. And he was doing this groundbreaking radical procedure, very much at the forefront of his field, a pioneer in medicine. He was putting this artificial trachea or windpipe into patients that was literally made in a lab out of plastic. And then the patient's own stem cells were supposed to grow into this plastic organ and integrate. And he was the only person in the world doing it. It was pioneering. It was brave. It was risky, but he was sort of this guy at the, you know, who was willing to take the risks and push medicine forward. And he seemed to be 
very altruistic and, you know, wanting to push medicine forward and wanting to help, you know, people. And he was fascinating. And he, his nickname was even the super surgeon. He worked at the place that gives the awards, the Nobel prize in medicine in Sweden. And he was rumored to be in contention for a Nobel prize himself. And in the course of working on this story, we fell in love. I did not realize at the time how vulnerable I was. My ex-husband, the, the father of our daughter was dying of brain cancer. And I was working on this story and at the same time trying to deal with this and knowing that he was going to die. And our daughter was nine at the time and having to tell her that her dad was going to die. And he and I became friends first, you know, I would yeah. after shoots kind of pour my heart out to him. And he was giving me really sage, kind advice about, you know, how to tell her that her dad was going to die and when to tell her and what to tell her. And I thought at the time, this man is so kind, you know, and yeah. has taken such a genuine interest in this little girl that he doesn't even know. And that's kind of how I fell for him. And then to fast forward the story, we fall in love and we have, we were together two years and he just seemed like Mr. Wonderful. You know, he was, aside from all the work I told you about, incredibly intelligent, worldly, sophisticated, spoke six or seven different languages. He was charming. You know, he was handsome. He, you know, was kind of a George Clooney lookalike and yeah. incredibly generous and doted on me, doted on my daughter, my friends, my family, flew me all over the world, incredibly romantic, you know, these incredibly lavish vacations. It was like a fairy tale, which really should have been my first warning sign, but you don't realize when you're in the middle of it. And everybody loved him. Everybody was jealous of our relationship. And we had this big, insane wedding planned because with all these celebrities coming and everything, because he wanted this big wedding in Italy. And he had told me that he was divorced. Well, actually, when I first met him, he told me he told me he'd been separated from his wife for many years and they lived in separate houses, which I knew because I'd seen, you know, I knew his wife lived in Italy and he lived in this house in Barcelona and they had two children who were in their late teens at the time. And then he said that now that he'd met me, he would finally file for divorce. And he just hadn't because, you know, it's Italy, they're Catholic, they had no yeah. reason to do it, but now he wanted to get divorced. And so he proposed, but we didn't start planning the wedding until he told me his divorce was final. Long story short, and I gave up everything for this man. Yeah. I left my job that I loved, my wow. network television job that I had worked so hard at, that I loved so much. I pulled my daughter out of her very difficult to get into private school because I thought we were kind of riding off into the sunset with him. Yeah. The plan was to move to his house in Barcelona. So, so much was at stake. And this was 2015. The wedding was supposed to be July 11th, 2015. I find out six weeks before the wedding that he's literally lying about everything. The whole wedding oh, was some sick, twisted, pathological lie. He had told me he wanted to surprise me with everything for the wedding. And yeah, um, yeah. I didn't know much about the details. That was his big thing. He wanted to surprise me. And he had surprised me throughout our whole relationship with these very elaborate vacations and everything. So this wasn't unusual. But everything that he said he, he had planned for the wedding, none of it was true. Nothing was booked, you know no hotels, no caterer, no castle where he had told the guests, blah, blah, blah. And he, he let this thing go so far. I mean, we had 300 plus people coming from around the world who had purchased plane tickets, who had booked hotels. If they weren't staying in the castle, that was for close friends and family. This was going to be like a four day extravagant kind of wedding of the century. People had spent a lot of money on fancy attire to wear for yeah. this wedding. I had purchased all these dresses, you know, the invitations, all of it. He let it go this far the whole time, knowing that the whole thing was a lie. And he was still married. He never got divorced. He Ooh. never could have legally married yeah. me in the first place. And that was only the beginning. So 
I canceled the wedding and went into this kind of cat and mouse game with him where I was investigating. I sort of woke up out of my love haze and put my journalist hat back on and started investigating and also hired a private investigator. And ultimately what I found out, I went to Barcelona, this house where we were supposed to be living. It was something we had argued about a lot before the wedding. He had flown me all over the world that every time we were supposed to go to Barcelona, the trip got canceled at the last minute. He had an emergency surgery. There were so many emergency surgeries. (laughs) And we had been arguing this had become a serious point of contention because I said, who marries a man or, you know, leaves their whole life in New York to go to a house they've never even seen. I'm not, I'm not doing that. And so I knew something was hiding in that house in Barcelona. I knew kind of the answers that I needed. I wanted hard proof evidence that he was lying to me. And I also knew it had to kind of be the, um, for lack of better words, a surprise attack. You know, right, so right. he he didn't know I was in Europe. He didn't know I was coming. And what I found in that house was he was hiding a whole third family. So oh, this is not, gosh. yeah, this is not the wife that he told me he divorced that he didn't. He had another family in that house with young children. So that was three of us right off the bat, right? That's me, the woman in this house and the wife that he hasn't divorced. I later found out there were other women. So he turned out to be a just, I don't know, a pathological liar. And my immediate thought, I mean, I, it was so devastating. And on so many levels, I had given up everything for this man. Everything was at stake. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. I, you know, and all these people that I had dragged into this, you know, that had lost money because they believed it because I believed it, you know, it was so crushing and I wanted to just disappear. You know, I I wanted to crawl under the bed or into the closet and just not come out. It it was devastating. But my immediate thought was, wait a minute, if he's telling me such egregious, ridiculous, honestly, fantastical kind of lies with with the celebrities and he's dignitaries, he said, we're coming to this wedding and the detail he went into, he must be lying in his medical and professional life, right? How could it not transition from one to the other? And that was terrifying because that meant people could be at risk. That meant this man is dangerous and people could be dying. And I felt an urgency actually to expose him and to wave the flag and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This man is not who you think he is. And that's why I decided to go very public. I decided to go public very quickly, which was a very difficult decision to make because I had always been a very private person and to air all of this publicly and to admit to the whole world that I got conned and you know, to have to tell the personal details. I knew it was going to be difficult and it, and it has been, but it wasn't about me. It was about the fact that people are in danger. And sure enough, I went public very quickly. So early January 16, and within weeks, a scathing documentary comes out in Sweden that exposes his medical lies. And it was the combination of the two things that just the whole house of cards came tumbling down and what turned out to be, and which is horrifying, which is way worse than what he did to me. He had put this artificial trachea into eight patients. Seven of them are dead. Oh my gosh. The only one that's still alive had the thing taken out. This thing didn't work. He never did the animal experiments that you're supposed to do before operating on humans. So he essentially used people as human guinea pigs. He didn't get the ethical approvals he was supposed to get. He's a fraud. Bottom line is he's a fraud and people died because of it. And it's beyond horrifying. I, it it's is. so awful. Yeah. He, I, he, I can't even fathom who, like that just blows my mind. No, it's so, so confounding. It's it so utterly confounding. And the thing about it that continues to defy logic, I lost money because I had spent money on the invitations and dresses that he was supposed to pay me back. And I had no reason to believe he wouldn't pay me back because the man was incredibly generous, but he wasn't taking money from me. He wasn't in it for money. Right. And so, and here he was this very accomplished, prestigious surgeon and scientist with, you know, 
accolades all over the world who is literally nicknamed as the super surgeon. Yeah. Why do this? You know, why, why, why? What was the reason to, to tell all these insane lies? It's just, it's crazy. It's really crazy. To destroy another human being's life. It's, it's appalling it's, and unforgivable. Yeah, unfor- absolutely, absolutely unforgivable. You know, I can't. And that's the reason I have continued to talk about this. He's finally yeah. going to trial. Um, Next month, actually, a month from now, he's going to trial in Sweden in connection with the deaths of the three patients that were operated on in Sweden. So there's a chance that he'll finally be held accountable and maybe serve time and which I think he needs to be behind bars. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge scandal. And people at Karolinska, the place that gives the Nobel Prize of Medicine where he worked, people got fired, people stepped down in shame, people on the Nobel Prize Committee got fired and stepped down in shame. He obviously got fired, all kinds of investigations, you know, medical papers retracted. This is a giant, giant medical scandal. So he, you know, it's not just me that he fooled. No, he's destroyed so many lives. So many and was able to, that's the frightening part about it, was able to pull the wool over so many people's eyes. And I mean, smart people, you know, major institutions and doctors and scientists, and he somehow got away with it all this time. Unbelievable. So two very important questions come to mind for me. First, how did you comfort and break the news to your daughter about all of this? Most important, I mean, she was obviously hugely affected by this. So how did you do that? Like, I can't even imagine how hard that must have been for you and for her, of course. Yeah, it was interesting because towards the end of the relationship, they had started fighting quite a bit. She had started pulling back from him a little bit. And I think in hindsight, when he swooped in on his fake white horse, you know, her dad was dying and he was sort of the hero saving the day. And she was a vulnerable little girl, the same way that I was vulnerable because of what was going on. And I think she was much more easily manipulated at the beginning. And then as she started getting older, she's very smart you know, and she's very perceptive. And I think he kind of realized that he couldn't manipulate her anymore. And he kind of had no use for her anymore. And so in a way that helped buffer what was coming later, because, and they had been fighting to the point that I was becoming very concerned about how our life was going to go in Barcelona. And, you know, she was seeing a therapist for years after her dad died and he wouldn't come and talk to the therapist. And I was getting very frustrated and that was a sign. But when I did sit her down and tell her, she was incredulous. You know, she kept saying, mommy, no, mommy, no, that's just not possible. That's just not possible. She was in shock the same way we all were in shock. And then I think she went into very much protective mode and concern for me. And just, it took a lot of constant reassuring for me that we were going to be okay, that no matter what I would get back on my feet and that we were going to be okay. Fast forward now, seven years later, and she's just so angry. <laughs> she, she constantly says, if I ever see him, if I ever run into him in an airport, I'm going to go up to him and punch him. <laughs> and I, I will laugh, right? Like we're yeah. laughing. And she's like, no, mom, I'm not joking. You know, it's on. And she's also, she's interested in, she's wavering between, well, several things, marine biology, photography, and psychiatry, but she's very good at analyzing him. She has very good yeah. insights into it now. I think laughter is so important in life in general and being able to laugh at yourself and we're able to laugh about it. We, we still laugh about it. So yeah, the healing process, important part right. of the healing process, right? Very much and so. Yeah. Secondly, who did you have for support? I mean, I imagine you had a huge support system in your friends, but how was that for you with your friends and having that support and being able to lean on them? I have the most amazing friends. You know, I am blessed with the most incredible group of friends and would not have gotten through this without them. I have incredibly dear friends. I've met more through this process and they 
are just have always been there, you know, yeah. when I need them, they have always encouraged me and have never let me crawl up in that ball on the floor, even when I yeah. wanted to. And I just, yeah, I cannot say enough about my friends. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky, incredibly fortunate. I treasure my friends. My friends are um, just beautiful people and they've really yeah. helped me yeah. through all of this. Yeah. And my family as well. So I'm very, very lucky in that regard. Absolutely. Now, how long ago did you start Baraka Productions? And can you tell us a bit about the company and its mission? You know, my original goal in going public was simply to expose this man. You know, right. it was not a revenge mission or anything. I just wanted to put it out there that, hey, you know, here's who this man really is and let the, the rest kind of fall where it was going to fall. What surprised me and what I didn't expect was the number of women who started reaching out to me from literally from all over the world and thanking me, which was very humbling and kind of, I was kind of taken aback by it at first, but they were thanking me for being brave enough to tell my own story and thanking me for making them feel less alone and less stupid. And this happened so often that, you know, it was one email or whatever, after the other, after the other, that I realized, wow, you know, there's really a vital actually need for us to talk about this and to explain expose this and to connect as women and somehow support each other through this and empower women. And so I was not expecting to go on this path, but it sort of turned into this path of wanting to help empower other women and help other women that have been through anything remotely similar to what I've been through, get through it and know that they can survive it and that they're not alone and that above and beyond all, they're not stupid. And so I started talking more and more and doing a lot of, you know, media and then even more women would come forward and more women and then I decided that I want to tell other women's stories. You know, I've told my own many times. I'm still not done telling my own. But now I, what Baraka Productions is, is about is about telling other women's stories and empowering, basically empowering other women to not be shamed into silence. Your story gained quite a bit of national recognition. It appeared on ABC's primetime series, The Con with Ruby Goldberg. It was featured as a two-hour special on ABC's 2020. And you, of course, produced your own documentary about it, mm -hmm. which I have seen, which was amazing, actually. Oh, thank Incredible. you. <laughs> Firstly... How long after this happened, did you begin to share your story with the world in that arena of national television? Secondly, how hard or cathartic or maybe and cathartic was the process for you of sharing this story on national television? When I first went public, it was an article in Vanity Fair. And I made that choice because I knew it could, it could be done quickly. And I felt right. this urgency to get the story out. There were things about the article I wasn't happy about. And I didn't feel like it told the whole story. And it didn't really tell my story. And, and everybody kept saying to me after that, oh, this story is so insane. It should be a movie, you know, or, or a book or, you know, and I was talking to a friend one day about that. And out in LA, Tamar, she's this, you know, very strong, tiny little woman, but a spitfire. And I was saying, yeah, but I don't know how to get a movie started. And she literally, she pulled out her hands and like mocking, like she was doing a, a violin string. She's like, oh, poor little Benita. Let me just play my little violin. She's like, you're a producer, go make your own movie. I was like, oh, and she said, and actually don't call me until you do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did. I made a two hour documentary called He Lied About Everything for Investigation Discovery, which came out on Valentine's Day in 2018. And it, it was important to me to tell my story my way. You know, I yeah. was one of the executive producers on that. I voiced it. I'm the correspondent, obviously. So I'm, I was telling my own story in my own words. And that was just very important to me 
to do. And then that, of course, just led to the story. Just it still amazes me, actually, that there's so much interest in the story seven years later. But I think I've told it so many times and because I lived it that I forget how fascinating and horrifying and bizarre the whole story is. So there's still a lot of things that are coming. You know, this is sort of the never ending story, particularly now that he's going to trial and hopefully there'll be some sort of culmination or ending or, you know, at least some little semblance of justice for those families, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, the story is so just fantastical and out there. It's right. It's hard to believe that anyone would do that and take it that far. Totally. It's it's just mind incomprehensible actually, you know? And that's why I think that's part of the fascination with the story because it's, it's so insane that you, you actually can't believe it's real. Yeah. You know, and that somebody would actually take things that far. And again, because there are so many stories now coming about out about con men and these wild stories, the Tinder swindler on Netflix, there's this new thing, bad vegan on Netflix, another con man who told these insane stories. And there are many of them, but they wanted money. And that's, that's the thing to I come back to. I, for the life of me, I don't know what he wanted unless it's just some sort of sick thrill, you know, some kind of high in getting away with it. Like the Leonardo DiCaprio character in Catch Me If You Can. It's yeah. just, it defies logic. It defies it understanding. It, it really does. Do, yeah, it truly yeah. does. How have these experiences helped shape the Benita you are today? Do you think? Hmm. I'm much stronger than I ever realized I was. I definitely have a much thicker skin. People call me brave all the time. And I sometimes say being brave sucks (laughs) because it's being in the public eye and the public arena and admitting that you got conned has led to a lot of ridicule and being called stupid and and many other things. And you get attacked, you know, by the haters and the trolls. And that part has been very shocking to me because I go, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to do what I think is the right thing here and expose somebody. Why are you, why are you attacking me? And all kinds of things, everything from attacking my appearance to, and I'm thinking, I don't, it doesn't matter what I look like. I don't care if I have a bag over my head. This man is a dangerous con man. He's killing people, but I have learned that I'm much stronger than I thought. Then I have a much thicker skin and I'm far more resilient than I ever realized I was. And also in an odd way, I'm thankful for this crazy experience. I would never want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it has put me on this path that I never expected to be on. I didn't plan on becoming an advocate for other women. I didn't see myself in this type of role, but I almost feel that maybe in some bizarre way, this was supposed to happen to me, you know, because I was a journalist, I'm a journalist and was strong enough to stand up against him and to expose him. And not everybody would have been. And I know that. Yeah. Some women would have crumbled under all of this and maybe it happened to me for a reason because I was meant to expose him and that somehow makes it all make sense. Do you believe now that this is your purpose? This is your mission? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Unequivocally. So that's it right there. There it is. This, unfortunately you had to go through this, but this led you to your purpose and why you're here. Right. right? And now it's still difficult to retell the story. I have a couple of things coming up. We're going to have to go through it again and tell it all through A to Z. And every time I kind of have to take a Deep breath, like here we go again. But it's much easier to put that aside now because I'm doing it for a greater purpose. I'm doing it to to help other women. And I know now that I am helping other women and I get so many women thanking me so profusely and and it's so heartfelt and so touching. And so, yeah, it's very rewarding now. What has been your biggest or most valuable lesson or takeaway from this experience? Mm. 
I think the alarming prevalence of love cons and the alarming prevalence of victim shaming, which is something I'm very passionate about now is ending victim shaming. I mean, I experienced it myself and I see it over and over again. And it's just so wrong. And so just the wrong approach, you know, it it serves no purpose. You know, someone has come forward who is brave enough to talk about something that was excruciatingly painful and embarrassing, which is a very difficult thing to do in the first place. And they're doing it because they want to expose somebody and help other people. So to then attack that person and instead of focusing on the con artist is just so backwards and and defeats the whole purpose. And the problem with that is this is part of the reason many women are afraid to talk and are afraid to come forward. And so you're just helping to perpetuate the whole thing. The con artists count on us not talking. They count on us being too embarrassed to not talk. So if you then, you know, just play into that and attack the victim, you're not helping anything, you know? And so it makes me very angry and I don't know exactly how yet I I can, I can end that other than to keep talking about it and and to keep encouraging women. But yeah, that has shocked me. The the victim shaming part of this has really shocked me. That's it, right? Is when you are brave enough and courageous enough to take that stand and tell your story and share something like that, that has been so personal and tragic and traumatic for you, but to have the courage to stand up, it gives others the permission to do so, to say, yeah. oh, wait a minute, I'm not alone in this. Exactly. Benita went through it. This woman yes. went through it. This woman went through it. So it's okay for me to stand up and talk about it. But like you I said, though, so. this victim shaming bullshit yep. prevents, I would imagine it prevents, I would I would hazard a guess to say 80% of the women from talking oh, yeah. about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, Which I would think horrible. so. It is horrible. horrible. It is horrible. And and this is why this perpetuates, you know, yeah. this, we need to talk about this. We have to talk about this. And the worst part of it for me is thinking about women doing what I wanted to do, which is kind of cr- crawling under the bed in shame, you know, yeah. and, and, and hiding and feeling humiliated and allowing an experience like this to make them feel less than and degraded yeah. and to take away their self-esteem and you know, it's like, I just kind of want to reach out and give them a big collective hug yeah. and tell them it's okay. It's not your fault. You know, yeah. you're not stupid. You know, these kind of artists are master manipulators. They are yeah. not unlike yeah. any other criminal. They, they target their prey. They know who they can con. They go for people that are vulnerable. They go for people with kind hearts and yep. they know what they're doing. And there's gaslighting and all kinds of things that go on. And it's just not, you know, anyone can get fooled. Unfortunately, you, a lot of people don't think they can, but you can, you can, of course you can. Mm-hmm. No one is immune to it. Nobody. 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 You started this company to help women who are going through or have gone through similar experiences to you. Was there anything like this for you when you were going through it that you knew of? I think when you're going, actually going through it, you don't even know that you're supposed to look for this type of thing. But in the aftermath of it, there's a lot of information out there about narcissists and narcissistic personality disorder and sociopaths. And so I was able to read a lot about that. There were a couple of books that came out in the middle of me going through it by women who had been through somewhat similar experiences. One is called Duped by Abby Allen, and another is Fake by Stephanie Wood in Australia. Both women who ended up interviewing me for their books yeah. and So that was very helpful, you know, and that was also for me seeing that other women, other strong women, both journalists, actually, you know, I I guess those, I I say those two, because those are two women that were also journalists, you know, who were also strong enough and brave enough to a expose a man, but also admit, you know, yes, this happened to me too. And that gave me a lot of strength, you know, a lot of encouragement. Yeah. Now, 
Once you shared your story, you had mentioned you got a ton of messages. Did this open up the floodgates for women to come forward with their stories? But how did that help you in your healing process? Because obviously you're still healing. This is, this is an yeah. ongoing journey for you. So how did these messages and emails help you heal through your process? I think it goes back to what I was saying that I realized maybe this happened for a reason. And this has given me a purpose that I didn't expect. This has put me on a sort of entirely new trajectory in life. And I, and initially I felt that I had a responsibility to expose him. I now feel I have a responsibility to do whatever I can to help other women who are going through the same thing. And that's so gratifying. And yeah. so it just, it gives me a kind of a gratification that I didn't get from anything else I did in my career. You know, I always loved what I did and I loved helping people. And there was definitely a gratification and when somebody would thank me, you know, but this is a very, I guess, because it's so much more personal and because I really feel the connection from women and the, you know, I've had women say to me, you know, every time I feel down, I, then I look up and I see you on TV or I see your story and I kind of like pick myself up again. And that's so humbling, but so I don't really know what the right word is. It's just, I'm so grateful, you know, I'm so grateful that somehow I'm able to help other women with my story. So looking back on your career as a producer, that at the time when you were in that, did you feel and believe that was your purpose, that the work you're doing was your purpose and your mission? Yeah. At the time, you know, when I was telling, yeah, as a journalist, because like I said, I'd wanted to be a journalist since since my uncle when I was eight years old. So, so how does that feel now with you having found your true purpose and mission feel for you when you look back and think, well, I thought that was my purpose, but now I really know I am fully living in my purpose. I think it was all part of the journey. And and my friends, my closest friends all said the exact same thing to me. They're like, you've been preparing for this your whole life. You just didn't know it, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And this is exactly where you're supposed to be. And it's true because my training as a journalist, right? And my work as a journalist enabled me to be able to expose him and gave me all the tools. I had all the tools in the shed ready to go. I didn't know it, but it was all stepping stones. So again, I'm going to assume here that this type of thing happens more often to women being victimized by men as opposed to the other way around. But I'm really curious to know if you know this is something that also does happen to men. And do you have, do you personally through what you've been through, all the people you've talked to, all the messages, do you have any stats on that type of thing? I don't have any statistics. I will tell you that it definitely happens to men, but if women are afraid to talk about this, men are far more ashamed and afraid to talk about this. There's a stigma attached to this. There's a stigma attached to talking about it for anybody. And I think it probably happens to men far more than we know. I have had a handful of men reach out, not a lot, definitely much more women, and only a few that have said they would tell their story publicly. You know, I think the overall humiliation and shame that's attached to this and the shaming that goes along with it is so prevalent. And we just have a long way to go. But Yeah, it does happen to men too. It can happen to anybody. I mean, a huge part of this for men is because of the conditioning that we get as boys. Right. That you don't show your emotions, you don't cry, you don't do this, you don't do that. That's not man enough. And, you know, it's ridiculous, that conditioning. And of course, women know all about that because women have been conditioned for so long with so many other different things. But yeah, (laughs) yes, sit there, look pretty, be quiet. That's Mm -hmm. it. And boys, when they're young, can run around and run amok and be rambunctious and, oh, they're just boys. Don't worry about it, which is totally ridiculous. 
but yeah, I mean, I would assume that it happens to men. And yes, I guess that that's a big part of why men wouldn't come forward because of this conditioning and shame. Have you personally received any messages from men reaching out to you saying, thank you for sharing that? I am a a victim. Yeah, Yeah, but only, only a handful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what do you say to men? Do you say, is it, is it a little bit different for you? Like, do you say anything differently in terms of words of advice or wisdom to men versus women when you, when you do encounter this as few as, as few and far between as these opportunities are? Actually. Yeah. I say to them that I don't often hear from men, but I know that this happens to men a lot more than, than we realize. And, and it's important to talk about that as well. And that although I have this platform that is very much about empowering women, yeah. that I don't want to exclude men by any right. means. And yeah. that I would certainly tell a man's story. And I think it's important to do so. And I guess I thank them a little extra more because for a man to come forward and tell me, you know, hey, you know, I got duped, I think is is extremely brave. So how does that feel for you having men? I mean, women, of course, are just more gra- gravitate towards women and because of the commonality. But how does that feel for you having men come to you and say, I went through this too? Like, how does that make you feel? What always happens with the men is that they're apologizing on the behalf of other men. So okay. every man that has reached out to me has has really apologized profusely for what happened to me. And I think they sort of feel like they by default represent all men. And, you know, they're they're apologizing on behalf of these con men. And that's kind of nice in a way you know, that they acknowledge that, you know, and obviously not all men are like that, but they are sort of ashamed for those men, you know. What is the one piece of advice you would give other women who have gone through this? And what is one red flag you could or would warn women to keep their eyes open for when in a relationship to to prevent this type of thing from happening? I think above and beyond all, and this was true for me, when you're vulnerable, you have to be hyper vigilant. And being vulnerable could be you just got out of a relationship, you just got a divorce, you've gone through a difficult breakup, you've had some kind of loss, you know, um, a family member died or, or something, or you lost a job, it could be anything. But when we're vulnerable, I mean, at its most basic essence, what do we want when we're vulnerable? We want somebody to come and wrap their arms around us and tell us that everything's going to be okay. We want to be loved. We need extra support, you know, and unfortunately, these con artists have what I call a vulnerability radar. They somehow can detect, they just know, they know who they can go after. And that's when they swoop in. So I think when you're vulnerable, you have to be hyper vigilant about protecting yourself and be extra cautious about who you allow into your life you know, and be very diligent about investigating them. And you've got to just have your guard up a little bit more. Yeah. And then the the second thing is, is to be aware of love bombing, which is when, you know, somebody swoops in and goes from zero to 60 in sort of two seconds, you know, everything's happening way, way too fast. You know, they they tell you they love you almost immediately. They tell you they want to marry you. You know, you're the best thing since sliced bread. They've been looking for you their whole life, you know, and this all happens way, way, way too fast. And they're showering you with gifts and affection and attention. And it's kind of dizzying. And that's a tactic. That's a very manipulative tactic because it distracts you from doing your homework or investigating. And it doesn't allow a relationship to grow. It takes time to get to know somebody. It takes time to fall in love. And they, they skip all of that. And this is this term love bombing. And that's something you really have to be aware of. Benita, what do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? (laughs) Superpower. Don't we wish we all had superpowers? We all do. (laughs) I think we all do. I don't ever give up. 
you know, I, and yeah. nothing can knock me down. I get knocked down sometimes, but I don't stay there. You know, I knock down. Obviously, then I, get I mean, <laughs> listen to your story that that, um, that would knock so many women and, and they would stay down. Yeah. So, and I uh, just, there's something in me. I have this fire in me that will never let that happen. No matter what <laughs> I go through. I just, I don't know what that is. It's always been there. It's yeah. always been in me and I've known it, but I just have this determination and this drive that no, nothing's going to take me down. And at the same time, I have a ton of energy. I'm kind, I'm kind of like the energizer bunny um, <laughs> and I have a real <laughs> zest for life. And I fortunately knock on wood or something. I've never lost that. You know, um, I have not lost my ability to have fun and my lightness and my, my zest and love for life. And luckily that balances out, you know, all this difficult stuff. Speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? Hmm. I think for me, success is a very personal thing. I think it's a, a sense of contentment with yourself and what you're doing and personal pride personal pride in your achievement, whatever that is, that doesn't have to be success in the way the world might define it in terms of like a successful career or whatever. It could be anything, you know, your own little tiny business or being a mother or a parent or, you know, but as long as I think success for me is defined by that internal feeling of satisfaction with yourself and where you are in life. And the the fact that you've done the best that you can do and you've hopefully made a difference and you've touched people's lives and yeah, just knowing that you've, you've done the best you can. Excellent. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before you learned it? And what was your life like after learning it? Hmm. I think this experience in particular has taught me that things change, things fade, friendships fall apart, relationships fall apart, people change, people make mistakes, people disappoint you, people betray you, you make mistakes, we're all just human, you know, we all make mistakes that not everything can be tied up in a pretty bow, not everything lasts forever. And that's okay. And I think that was a little bit of a hard lesson for me. I always wanted, you know, I don't like animosity. I don't like bad blood between people. And I've learned to just sort of let things drift and let things settle and just accept that that's part of life. You know, people come in and out of your life and people are there at different times of your life and that, that it's okay. It's, It's okay that people change. It's okay that people make mistakes. It's okay pay to make mistakes. I've made plenty of them. You know, I'm not perfect by any, by any means, you know? And I think, you know, we're all just human and we're all on our individual journeys doing the best we can. And yeah, that's been a big lesson to me to just, instead of, I used to obsess sometimes at night, I'd be writing letters to people in my head, you know, with, and I don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're going to jump into a little rapid fire section. So the next grouping of questions just be two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. How would you describe yourself in one word? passionate. What's your favorite stress reducing activity? Dancing far above and beyond everything dancing. (laughs) (laughs) If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Be more forgiving, you know, just just love each other and be more forgiving. What's one thing you want, but cannot buy with money? Hmm. Unconditional lasting love with a genuine, real loving partner. If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? eradicate hatred, racism, prejudice, all this hostility in the world, just, just erase it. What's the first thing you notice about a person? Their eyes and whether their eyes are smiling. Especially with COVID, everyone wearing masks. That's <laughs> yeah, you right. See, right? <laughs> the masks is very yeah. true. Yeah. What would your family and friends list as a couple of your best characteristics, would you say? You know, I actually asked my friends and family this recently because that came up in another another interview and I was just curious what they would say. The two words that came up the most were generous, incredibly generous, sometimes to a fault, kind and not judgmental. And that I am kind of live with my heart. 
What's an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful mm. for? So I, I have this beautiful 10-month-old goddaughter now who I absolutely adore. And I met her mother because of this whole crazy mess. And oh, wow. she, okay. she purchased the piano that this crazy con man had in my house. I sold it on Craigslist and yeah. she purchased it and we became like best friends. And now I'm her baby's goddaughter. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> Look at how much good has come. I mean, and not to take away from what you had to go through and deal with, but look at how much amazing goodness Absolutely. has come out of this. Like it's unbelievable. It's, it's so good. And I think that we as human beings need to start looking at and finding the silver lining in these yeah. situations. You know what I mean? Like we so often go to the negative and always dwell on the negative and look at all this shit with COVID. Everyone yep. was all up in our, and all negativity. And the media plays a big part in that, in perpetuating True. that negativity yeah. and whatnot. But if we just took the time to think about and look for the silver lining in things, because there's always something there always, good. I agree no with you. No matter what the situation is, there's always yeah. something good in there. You just have to look for it and find it. Right? So much. I mean, that's my favorite example, but I have several other friends who are dear, dear friends who I met because of, you know, because of this and that on top of the work that I'm doing yeah. now. And even the way it's changed me and changed my relationship with my daughter, my daughter and I are so close now. We have yeah. such an incredible bond. So yeah, definitely. There are a lot of silver linings. It's hard. I think it's hard at the time when you're going through some really rough times and to look for the silver lining, but I think if we don't, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice, but we can also end up down a very dark, deep rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and I know I, there were there were a couple of times I was tempted to go there. Well, you're and a even, human being, of course. Yeah. And even recently, actually, there was a time where I never read the, the comments now, you know, on yeah. things when, you know, because of all the haters and yeah. But for some reason, one night, this is only a few months ago, I have this fan that's sort of obsessed with me. And she said, she sent me something <laughs> and I looked at it and then I started reading the comments and I got, it was like getting sucked into a black hole because I read one comment and I was so horrified. And then I yeah. kept reading and now I'm sitting there with tears streaming down my face. And I'm thinking as I'm doing this, Benita, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are mm -hmm. you reading this? But then I got for a second, I had that whole thing of, oh my gosh, this is awful. And why am I doing any of this? Why am I putting myself in this position? Why am I going public? It really kind of shook me for a second. And then I called my best friend and, you know, she basically said, I'm going to kick your ass, you know, like, stop it. You know, like, <laughs> wake up, snap just, out of it, Benita. Yeah. <laughs> snap out of it. And it did, I did snap out of it immediately, but it, you do, it is hard. Sometimes you do, yeah. you, it is, it's not like, it's not easy. Yeah. I think that that's part of these haters and these idiots out there that these keyboard warriors will call them that's like i think bullies. that's part of their mission to detract you from doing the work yes. you're doing right and yeah. if you do get into that headspace which of course i mean any human being would it would bother them and it would weigh on them but it's just a matter of whether you let it drag you further down Correct. into their level but they count on that and they're banking on you oh, doing yeah. that yeah but the way to win is just to keep going and keep doing exactly. what you're doing yeah and exactly. that's it. And they hate that. They hate seeing that, right? They hate, they hate to see you keep going. Yeah. 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 But the work you're doing is, is so much bigger than you. Yeah. So much bigger. And I know that now. And that's why my friend was like, I'm going to kick your ass. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and, and then I had another friend who just kind of lectured me and said, this isn't even about you anymore. You know, yeah. you, you've been 
given a sort of uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, a mission, a higher purpose. And the you, torch you, has been passed to you. That's yeah. It. And you're on this path now and you have a responsibility to other people. You know, he said, you can't let anything, you know, sort of get in the way now. And he's right. He was right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. What does the best version of you look like when you close your eyes and imagine it? Being truly fearless and being truly comfortable in myself and having no doubts about myself and where I'm going and being very content with who I am and, and what I'm doing and maintaining the loving relationships I have with, with my daughter in particular and my family and friends and retaining the ability to, to um, laugh and laugh at myself and have fun and enjoy life and not take things too seriously yeah. <laughs> and not have any regrets as I get, get older, not have any regrets, at least none that I can't sort of deal with when I I'm my, my girlfriends tease me now because I, they call me the, what's the word they use the freezer eggs queen, because I'm always telling all my girlfriends who are still old enough to I'm like freeze your eggs because I wish I had, because I would have yeah. had more children if I had, and nobody ever told me that. And so they, they, you know, I'm on sort of this drive, like freeze your eggs, freeze your eggs, you know, <laughs> so that's a regret I have that I didn't do that, but not one that keeps me up at night, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think knowing that I've hopefully made a difference, you know, or can make a difference and that, you know, I've, t I've touched people. Oh, you definitely have for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's incredible. You are, and I'm sure you hear it all the time. You are strong. You are courageous for having the courage to publicly stand up and go on national television and tell your story in spite of the feelings of dread and embarrassment and not wanting to do it and realizing right. that this is bigger than you and you have to do it because You've got yep. to help other, I think is absolutely and incredibly admirable. You are one of a kind, truly. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's still hard sometimes, you know, of and course. It's, it's, it's sometimes exhausting, you know, it's sometimes I'm just sure. so draining, but I just, I'm you sure know. you have those days where you just want to hide away and you don't want to deal with any of it. You don't yeah, want to, exactly. you don't want to yeah. hear any of it. You don't want to relive that story again, or, but I guess, I mean, I don't know, I guess if you look back at the comments from all of the women you've helped, I guess oh, there it kind of helps you. Far more. I should have said that earlier. Actually, there are far more supportive comments yeah. and you know comments of of um, gratitude and and just people write me the most beautiful things. You know, yeah. I'm I'm so touched by the things people write, and every comment means so much to me. Yeah, and there are far more of those than the you know the negative haters. So yeah, Benita, what does the word empowerment mean to you? Baraka, which I am not saying correctly, but <laughs> Baraka is this Colombian slang term that it basically means a, a resilient woman who's been through something difficult, but still stands strong. And, and I was in Colombia last year and I kind of stumbled across, it was a restaurant called Baracas. And I asked the women, it was all run by women. Okay. And I said, what is this about? What does this mean? And when they told me, I just, I knew that was it. I just fell in love with this, this word. And I thought yeah. this just defines everything I'm doing. So to me, empowerment means a badass, basically a strong, fierce woman who, you know, is overcoming something and is resilient and is pulling herself up even when it's difficult and fearless in the face of, and brave and courageous in the face of, of stuff that can be very painful and very difficult, you know, and also honest enough to know that even when you're a badass, there's still going to be, there's still going to be days that are difficult and days that hurt. And you are still going to fall down sometimes, but you can get back up. That is you. You are the embodiment of it, truly. Honestly, that's oh, that's you. you. Amazing, you. amazing. If you had the opportunity, and I'm sure you've had many opportunities to sit down with many women, but if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? 
that you haven't talked to yet? <laughs> so I'm going to give you a, a two-part answer to that sure. because one, one that's no longer with us and one that yeah. is. The one that's no longer with us that I would love to sit down with is Frida Kahlo. I'm a big fan of hers, a Mexican artist. That, yeah. that, um, I think she died in 1954 and she was only 47 or something like that. And because I think she was, and ahead of her time, she was fearless and resilient and powered on through so much personal difficulty, polio as a child, and then this, this horribly debilitating accident that and was in so much physical pain all the time and not afraid to break the mode, you know, and using her art to do that, like um, painting about really difficult things like miscarriages and, yeah. and death and the suicide of a friend and pushing through all of it in spite of criticism and controversy and, and all of that. So to me, she was a little bit ahead of her time in that sense. And I, I have Frida, K I'm looking around, I have Frida K Kahlo stuff everywhere. I just would like to talk to her about, and also I know she battled through depression through all of it. And I just like to know what she was thinking and how she did it and how she kept going and whether yeah. she saw herself, you know, because she's definitely an icon of sorts now and a role model. And I don't know if she knew that at the time, you know, and then another one is Angela Davis, which is someone my daughter really admires for her political activism and sort of her tireless activism for both civil rights and, you know, the feminist movement. And again, someone who's not afraid to break the norm and break the mold and, and battle on despite you know, being knocked down. You yeah. Know? Two incredibly strong women. Mm -hmm. Benita, what is your why? My why for just, doing this? Yeah. Just everything, all the work you're doing. Because if I can help even one woman feel better about herself and help even one woman know that she is not alone and she is not stupid. And that even though it doesn't feel like it, and I know it doesn't feel like it, you can survive this, you will survive this, and you will be stronger because of it. And if I can help even one woman, but hopefully many more than one, yeah. and then everything's worth it. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, mm. what would that piece of advice be? Relax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, I used to worry. I was worried so much about, you know, everything, how I looked, what I was eating, what other people thought. And, you know, and I think back now and I thought, God, what a waste of time, you know, all this, all this time that was wasted on not just being free and not just jumping in the pool and getting my hair wet or, you know, yeah. not eating that chocolate dessert or, you know, whatever. It's like, I just want to go back and shake myself and just like, relax, you know, like, <laughs> you're going to be fine. And it's not that serious, you know, yeah. Yeah. but I guess that's just something you learn with age, unfortunately. Yeah. Very true. Lastly, <laughs> if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, and when I say world, I mean your corner of the world, your tribe, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart unto them? I think each one of us is on our own journey. Each journey comes with setbacks, with difficulties, with heartache, with things you don't see coming. And it's important to not get mired in the regret and the pain and the, the bitterness. Don't hold grudges. Don't get stuck. There's always hope. And if you feel like you don't have hope, ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. If you fail, it's okay. Everybody fails at something. You can pick yourself up. You can keep going. It's not the end of the world. Keep living, keep laughing, whatever you do for joy. Don't ever stop doing it. You know, I'm going to be dancing until I'm 90 years old, you know, or beyond however long I get to be on this earth and enjoy your achievements and successes, but never forget at the end of all of it, to me, what matters the most is love. You know, at the end of it, in your last hours, your last minutes, it's the people you love, your family, your children, your loved ones, being with you, surrounding you and knowing that they are with you 
that's what matters in the end. In the end, love is everything. Beautifully said. Benita, thank you so very much for taking the time to be here today. This conversation has been absolutely and thoroughly incredible. And I applaud your bravery, your courage, and I am so inspired by you and what you're doing and how much you're giving back and helping people and impacting people's lives is just absolutely incredible. Could you please share with the people where they can find you if they want to get in touch with you, where, what you're, where you are on social media, your website, all of that stuff. Yeah. On social media, which is Instagram and TikTok, it's at lovecon which is L-O-V-E-C-O-N-N-E-D. I have my own podcast called Benita and the Baracas, which you can find on YouTube. It's also on every, you know, every platform, audio platform, you can find it, you know, Spotify, Apple, all of them. And my website is just my name, BenitaAlexander.com. So that's pretty easy. It's, and it's B-E-N-I-T-A. A lot of people think it's Bonita, but it's, but it's not. It's B-E-N-I-T-A. And all that information will be in the show notes for everyone. But again, thank thank, I am so grateful to have had this opportunity to sit down and speak with you and share in your journey and your story. And I appreciate you making and taking the time to be here to share with the Empowerography community. I'm honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Now I'm really honored to be here and I'm really grateful to you for what you're doing. I think, I think it's amazing. And I think it's very important to have male voices in all of this. And I, so my hat's off to you as well. I think it's, it's really commendable and important work that you are doing also. Thank you very much. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest was Benita Alexander. She is the founder and CEO of Baraka Productions. Thank you so much, Benita. I hope you have an amazing Thank you. Thank you, you too. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.